Welcome again to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. So glad that you've uh, decided to join us again. Uh, we are going to try, and I'm going to do my best to finish this long series I've been doing on the subject of end times prophecy. We've entitled it Understanding the End. And believe it or not, in case you haven't been counting the episodes, this is episode 13 of this series, but I do want to try to finish it today, so let me just jump right back into where we left off last week. I may have to go a little bit longer, but I hope to finish today, and then we have some exciting episodes coming up with some guests I hope you'll really enjoy, but uh, I want to uh, finish this up by going back to the Millennial Kingdom. That's where we left off last week, and hopefully you're listening to these podcasts week to week. If you haven't, if you're just jumping in, go back and listen to those first 12 episodes now as we try to finish today. But the Millennial Kingdom, as you know, is a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, a literal reign from Jerusalem. I think the literal premillennial, pre-tribulational approach, as I've been stressing almost every episode, is the right way to look at Bible prophecy. It's not the only way people look at it, but it is, to me, the most scripturally sound and consistent view of taking all that the Bible says about prophecy and bringing them together. Can we answer every question? Can we dot every I across every T on prophecy? No, but neither can groups who believe in other views like all millennialism or post-millennialism or other views where there isn't even a rapture. So I've been teaching it that way and hopefully you've been keeping up on it. Now, before I finish the millennium, I thought it was good that I would uh, put in here what I call some extra things, you know, some minutia. Uh, these are uh, areas that are involved with the second coming that the biggest uh, problem with them is timing. And so that's why I haven't really covered them yet, because I'll admit that I can't be 100% sure, and neither can anybody else that I've read, and I've done quite a bit of study on this subject of prophecy over the years, uh, about several key events. They're important, no less important than things we've already studied, but we don't know exactly when they happen. I'm going to throw these in here right now, give you my opinion where I think they happen, um, and I'll throw them in now because I do believe that they happen prior to the millennium. So I don't want to finish the millennium and the whole series today without covering these. And there's three of them I want to talk about. I won't be long on any of the three. The first one is is one I'm, I'm sure you've heard of. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Generally, what is the judgment seat of Christ? Well, uh, it's a time when all Christians after the rapture will stand before the Lord and be given rewards or fail to receive rewards for their work on earth. Uh, let me just clarify. Remember, when you're saved, you're born again, all your sins are atoned for, are covered, are forgiven in Jesus Christ. You'll never have to answer for your sins before this judgment seat. This is going to be a time of the giving out of rewards uh, for Christians. And unfortunately, according to parables like the parable of the talents and several other verses we could look at, there'll be some Christians who will fail to receive all the rewards that they could have had if they would have been more faithful. Boy, there's tons of verses, especially in the New Testament, about Christians being faithful and, and serving God with a devoted and dedicated life. And the reason for that, it's not going to be in vain. Not only does it bring you closer to the Lord and find more fulfillment and contentment in this life, but in the next life there's going to be reward. I think of a great verse that I often use in relation to these rewards or losing those rewards. 
not getting them. Second John, the little epistle in verse 8, John said, Look to yourselves, that's to Christians, that we lose not those things which we have worked for, a rot, the old King James uses the word rot, worked for, served for, but that we receive a full reward. That's a great statement. Well, this judgment seat of Christ is spoken of several times in the New Testament. There's a Greek word that we get this idea from. You've probably heard of. It's called the bima. And the bima seat was a place in every Roman city like Corinth. And I'm going to read from First and Second Corinthians in a minute, so it's appropriate. But the bima was a place where all city um, law and order was kept, all city uh, civil suits and, and uh, uh, basically legal matters uh, were dealt with. Uh, but also, of course, rewarding of people, rewarding of, of different uh, uh, people who did good things and, and as well as punishing evildoers. And so it became familiar to Christians as a place of, of getting rewards from the Lord. And so listen to what Paul writes in 2 uh, Corinthians 5.10. He says, For we must all, and the we and the all, he's writing to a Christian church. Let's not confuse that. He's writing to a Christian church, so primarily this statement is for believers, though the end of the verse, I think, will incorporate other judgment, too. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the thing done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, in light of the rewards that are given out at this bima, at this judgment seat, the good or bad would refer to, again, what we saw in 2 John 8, that some Christians are going to fail to receive all the rewards that they could have. And back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul uh, relates this judgment. He doesn't use the phrase judgment seat of Christ here, but that's what he's referring to. He's referring to our Christian lives. They start with the foundation of Christ, and then we build on them. And he says, now if any man should build upon this foundation, this is 1 Corinthians 3.12, Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, made known. For the day shall declare it. What day? Well, this is the day of the judgment seat of Christ, I believe. Because it shall be revealed by fire. Fire is that which judges and purifies and, and takes away the dross, the scum, if you will. And that's how they purified metals. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, it continues, it remains. If it's good work, done in the right motive which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. And so this judgment seat of Christ is for rewards. And in fact, Romans 14.10, you can read that verse. It also uses the exact phrase judgment seat of Christ. Now, the big question is, of course, when will it take place? Well, uh, nobody could be 100% sure on this. It never really says. I'm of the opinion, uh, since I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of all the saved, it fits perfectly in my chronological view of these events to say that once we're raptured and we're taken into heaven, uh, the seven-year tribulation will unfold on earth. It appears to me that would be the perfect time that this judgment seat uh, event will take place. And the reason I say that is by the end of the tribulation, as we've already discussed in this order, we will come back with Christ at the visible second coming of Christ, at the Battle of Armageddon, when he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, sets up his kingdom, we will be those on white horses behind our Lord, whose name is faithful and true. We read that passage in Revelation 
19. So I think that judgment seat of Christ happens sometime. I don't know if it's going to take the whole seven years. No one could be sure of that. I just feel like it happens sometime. While all the events on earth are transpiring, we are being uh, judged in a good way in the judgment seat of Christ for all our rewards in heaven. Well, let me go on to, since I'm talking about judgment, how about the Old Testament saints? Uh, This is even a bit of a more difficult question to answer. Because remember now, the rapture, as we've already told you, is only for New Testament believers, those since the day of Christ, since the time of Christ on earth, uh, part of the family of God, those saved during this church age or the period of time that the church has been doing its work on earth. But how about all those Old Testament saints before Christ? You know, all the way back to Adam and, and, and going all the way through the Old Testament, the prophets and the great men like David and Moses and Abraham and so on. Well, Uh, This is another difficult one. Uh, We do know that they will be resurrected to stand and live in the millennial kingdom. I believe that's only uh, correct and proper uh, to say because, remember, the millennial kingdom, this thousand-year reign we've been discussing, is for the sake primarily of Israel and for their Messiah to reign over them. It would seem very much inappropriate for the Old Testament Jewish saints and some Gentile saints too, by the way, to not be a part of that. So I believe they will be. Now, when then do they get resurrected? Well, I believe it has to be sometime prior to the millennial reign of Christ. Now, again, we only have very, very sparse references to this. We do know, I'll state this right up front, we do know that the Old Testament saints, as early as even the book of Job, which is probably the earliest book chronologically ever written in the Bible. Job even spoke of resurrection. So we know that they believed in resurrection. And in fact, maybe I had to read that passage. I hadn't planned on it, but let me turn to it. In Job 19, listen to what Job says. And most scholars believe this is the earliest book because it doesn't even refer to Israel as a nation. And uh, like Moses' books, which are written by Moses, the first five books. But listen to what Job said in Job 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer, my Savior, Jesus Christ, liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. What a verse. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. He says, though I go to the grave and my body is eaten up by worms, I'm going to still see God one day. How could that be possible? By resurrection. Whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. So he, he says uh, that I'm going to see my Redeemer, and I believe that means in the Millennial Kingdom. Now, the one passage I do think refers to this event is in the prophet Daniel, in the book of the prophet Daniel, chapter 12. And it's a great passage of just two verses, but I think as you look at these two verses, it really, uh, I think, talks about resurrection of the Old Testament saints and then kind of puts it in line with what I think must be sometime before the millennial kingdom. Uh, I can't say exactly when, but it must happen before them because they're going to go into the kingdom. Here's what Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2 say. And at that time, he gives a specific reference to time, shall Michael, remember Michael the archangel, the warrior angel of God, shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. Now this is uh, a revelation given to Daniel that he writes down. So thy people would be Israel. That's Daniel's people. And there shall be a time of trouble. Now this is the tribulation. 
such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. Well, we've already referred to that seven-year tribulation, how terrible it'll be. And then he says, and at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. Well, the thy people is, are the Jews. And of course, we know we've talked about these Jews that I think will be kept safe by God and protected through the tribulation period and, and go through it. And at the end of it, we'll see the Messiah come. We read Zechariah where they, they, they shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for an only son. We saw that. So that passage, verse 1, could be applied to those Jews, I think a third of the Jewish people, I talked about that already, that will meet Christ when he comes visibly. But verse 2 then adds another aspect to it that I think includes now the Old Testament Jewish saints that had died. And all Old Testament saints. I would include in that Rahab, the, the great uh, uh, Gentile convert who becomes a part of the genealogy of Christ, like Ruth, like the Queen of Sheba probably was saved herself. So we're not talking about just Jewish necessarily uh, in this uh, part they'll have in the kingdom. I'm talking about any believers before Christ and could have been Gentiles as, as well. Look, listen to verse 2. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That's not soul sleep. It simply means their bodies had went back to dust and had died many, many years ago. It says, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. He says, uh, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Now he says, those that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That's resurrection. And I think that verse could very well tie in that the Old Testament saints, probably prior to, maybe right at that time, I don't know when, I'm not going to argue the time frame, I'm going to tell you that they do uh, resurrect. Christ resurrects them, and I think it's only proper they be part of the kingdom. Now, one final very uh, debated event that I thought I'd better throw in here because there's so much speculation, and this one's even more difficult than the first two, the judgment seat of Christ and the judgment of the Old Testament saints, or their resurrection time at least. It's called the Russian invasion of Israel. Now, if you've never heard of this, I'm not going to take time to go deeply into it. I will only refer to the passages uh, that it's found in, and that's Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. If you read that on your own, you'll see uh, the names of some, some nations. And I'm going to just cut to the chase and tell you that Gog and Magog uh, seem to be uh, Gog, the leader of a land called Magog, Russia. We believe it's Russia that it's referring to. And it's an allied confederacy of nations that will probably be headed up by uh, Magog and their, their leader, who's called Gog, uh, that will invade Israel. You read it. I'm going to let you do this on your own. Uh, it is an obscure passage. It's, it's, it's kind of difficult to interpret every part of it. But I will say that if you look at the Bible literally, which I believe you have to unless you're clearly shown otherwise, there will be an invasion from the north. And it'll be headed up by this Russian confederacy. And there are some other nations that we know well right now. Uh, Libya and Persia, which is Iran and Iraq and some of these other Middle Eastern nations and North African nations that will invade and try to destroy Israel. I'll give you the, the short uh, answer to what happens. Israel defeats 
this Russian confederation in a very powerful way. They don't defeat them. God does, I should say. Let's just be honest. God comes and five-sixths, five-sixths, I don't know how large the army will that's, that begins this invasion, but you put all those nations together and with Russia as the, the head of the whole thing. Israel, and, and they'll attack Israel in her little land where she is today. By the way, she had to be back in her land for that invasion to take place, and she is today. That makes a lot of sense. But five, six, you read it, you'll see the percentage of the Russian confederate, confederated soldiers, that confederated army, will be destroyed on the mountains of Israel. And they'll be burying them for a long period of time. You'll see it in there. Now, the big question, and I'm not going to tell you I have the answer for it, is when shall this Russian invasion of Israel take place? Uh, there's people who, who hold the view it'll happen before the rapture. Some believe it happens right after the rapture. Some people believe it happens at the end of the tribulation or right before the battle of Armageddon. Some believe that it has, has to do with the final battle at the end of the millennium, which I'm going to get into in a moment because it's going to use that phrase Gog and Magog uh, again. Well, I'm not going to tell you I can answer that. I'm going to tell you the battle will take place. I don't know exactly when and how it'll fit in. But I do know that it's going to take place just like uh, God said it will. And so I wanted to include it that God will give victory uh, to Israel. Now, let me get back to, that brings us back to the millennium. All these kind of extra minutia things I wanted to throw in because now we've got to finish our study with the end of the millennium. And if you have your Bible, you need to be turned to Revelation 20 and 21 and 22 because that's kind of where all this climax is. Now, what's very amazing about the millennium is that, is that I've told you it's a period of righteousness and of blessing, utopia, great contentment and peace on the earth. But there is sin, and there's still sinners being born. And so one of the most amazing things about the millennium that we're going to see now in Revelation chapter 20 is that the devil, remember Satan, the, the dragon, the beast, uh, or, or, well, it's actually Satan, the beast and the false prophet have already been thrown into the lake of fire. But remember, Satan was locked up. We saw it. He was chained in the bottomless pit for a thousand years, according to Revelation 20, verse 3. But at the very end of the millennium, this is just very hard to understand why, uh, God's going to let him out for one last deception, one last attempt to, to lure people away from the truth. And the only reason this could possibly be the case, it gets back to the whole idea people often ask, why was there even a tree in the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden? Why did God even make there be a choice for man to sin? Because if, if there would have been a choice, then man would have never sinned. But you've got to see it the other way, friend. That means man would have not had free will and to choose to love and serve God of his own volition, his own choice. God has to give us a choice. Every relationship has to have choice. It cannot be forced. And I think the reason we're going to read this passage now of, of the devil having one last chance to deceive the world is that those mortals that will be living during that end of that millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign, will have to make a choice one more time. Tragically, we'll see that some choose to follow the devil again. Listen to the reading. Revelation 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are expired, Right at the very end, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. He's let go and, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Uh, in other words, all those who are alive and living all over the earth during the millennium, and it'll be the mortals because the immortals, we that are saved and were raptured and went into the kingdom, will already receive glorified perfect bodies. So we won't be deceived, but the mortals will. 
He says, Gog and Magog. He throws that in there. And to gather them together to the battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Now, I'm not sure why he throws Gog and Magog in there. I do not believe it's the same battle as Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's my opinion. He may throw it in there as a reference to another rebellion. Uh, but we know this is a terrifying rebellion, the last of all rebellions, because the devil is able to convince enough people to come against Christ and Jerusalem, where he lives, where he's reigning, because this next verse is going to tell you all the, all the detail. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, encompassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city. And let me stop there. So the devil is able to convince enough people in this final rebellion to say, we don't want Jesus Christ to reign over us. We want to attack his throne in Jerusalem. We want to dethrone him, and we'll reign with our leader, Lucifer, the devil, Satan. And they managed to compass the city. Man, for a moment at least, it looks like a pretty successful rebellion. But listen to how the verse ends. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Wow, pretty short statement. You know what happens? Christ the Son is ruling on his throne. He's taken care of business for a thousand years, but the Father and the Spirit, we have to include this Trinitarian aspect, the Father and the Spirit, God the Father gets so angry at this final rebellion. He doesn't even wait and allow his son to quelch and crush this rebellion. He speaks a word from the throne itself and devours the devil and every one of these who, rule, who uh, came and rebelled against Christ's reign from Jerusalem. Now, again, when it says destroyed them, it doesn't mean they go into annihilation because the very next verse tells you what happened. He destroys their, their attempt to overthrow Christ and cast them all into the lake of fire. Look at verse 10. The devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That final rebellion is over. Well, then uh, there's one passage right after that that to me is probably the most horrifying passage in all the Bible. It's one that I've preached from and used in many evangelistic encounters and it's called the Great White Throne Judgment. Remember how we had a judgment seat of Christ? We talked about the judgment of the Old Testament saints. How about the judgment of all the wicked? We haven't ever talked about that yet because this is it. Finally, God is going to resurrect all the wicked from the way back from the time of Adam and Eve, all, all those after them. We believe Adam and Eve were saved, but after them they had a wicked son, Cain, and all those after them till the very last person of the millennium mortal person who is a sinner is not saved. They're going to have to stand before the Lord. I'm going to just read verse 11, Revelation 20. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them, nowhere to hide. This is the final climactic judgment. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. Another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Here's an amazing thing. The book of life contains the names of all the saved and it's kept in there eternally. It's like the great roll call of heaven. But if you don't come to Christ, if you don't get born again, if you, if you don't repent and turn to Jesus Christ and have your life changed by Him, you won't be in that book. Your name will be blotted out of the book. I believe personally, I don't have time to get into this, Maybe it's for another podcast. I believe everybody starts out of the book, but you are blotted out as you reject Christ 
And only God knows exactly when that happens. If you're a reprobate or it's after death, I'll leave that to God. But you are blotted out of the book. And look at verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Well, that's a horrifying judgment. And that's really how the millennium ends, really, because you've got that rebellion that's that's punished and, and crushed, the rebellion of the devil, and now the wicked are all dealt with. And we've got all that out of the way now. Now we can enter the last period uh, of our study after all these 13 episodes, the 13th episode we're in now, it's called eternity. And there's not a lot said about it because it's going to be so different than any other period of time that God has to limit what he says because we couldn't understand and compare it to anything else anyway. But it's found really in chapter 21 mainly and a little bit of chapter 22. Uh, and I'm just going to give you the highlights of eternity. It's called eternity because time will never be kept after that. After the thousand-year reign, and the crushing of the devil's rebellion and the great white throne judgment of all the wicked who are cast into the lake of fire. By the way, there's no reason to believe that's not a literal lake of fire. Uh, you can't play around with the text and say it doesn't really mean that. If you do that, you can play around with the text anywhere and claim anything doesn't mean what it says. It's a literal lake of fire. And they're going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what it says. I'm going to take God's word for it and let him work out all the details. But after all that happens... There's going to be a recreation. This is amazing. Here, notice how chapter 21 reads. And I'll read mostly from Revelation 21 and 22. He says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Well, after God uh, purifies, cleanses the earth of all the wicked, then he creates a new heaven and new earth. Now, it's going to be unlike anything we could imagine. It's going to be so unique, so different. Because remember, our earth has been cursed. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and all of mankind fell, the whole universe was put into chaos and, and turmoil. Uh, you brought death and judgment and, and wrath and sickness and pain and suffering and all the things that go along with sin. But now that sin's been eradicated, Sin has been dealt with with one final sweeping blow by God. Now, a brand new heavens and earth are created. There's other verses like 2 Peter 3.10 that you could look at. I won't go to all those, but they teach the same thing. So God's going to recreate a new heavens and new earth. It's going to be a wonderful thing. One of the most perplexing and intriguing parts of it is, is a new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to sit on this new earth. When he says he creates a new heaven and new earth, remember, I might include this, there's actually three heavens. There's the first, second, and third heavens. The third heavens are where God dwells, the highest of heaven, and they never get changed. They don't need to be changed. They've never been corrupted. He dwells on the highest of heaven. But the first two heavens are like the atmosphere and then the space heavens above us. They're going to be recreated because they've been corrupted and perverted by the fall of man too. And they're going to be recreated. Verse 2, John sees this. As he sees so much in the book of Revelation, he's shown this vision. And I, John, saw the holy city. New Jerusalem. Not the old Jerusalem. Not the city that killed Christ. Not the city that's had so much warfare and bloodshed and all that. Now, this is a new Jerusalem. Coming down from God out of heaven. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There's a lot of hard things to be sure of in this chapter. I agree. But we can at least know that this city is a literal city. And we're going to live in it. 
And I love how it describes it. And I heard a great voice, verse 3, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God. This is where God dwells. This is where he has been dwelling. I think the new Jerusalem is just a picture where God dwelt in heaven. Jerusalem means the city of peace. And he's been, he's been the prince of peace always. He's been living in that peaceful, contented place in heaven. But now that's going to come down to earth where he can dwell among us and we with him. He says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. Well, that's the deity of Christ, by the way. This is Jesus as God. He is God. He's dwelling in, in his perfect state, his perfected state, his invisible body, forever to behold. The, the, the uh, wounds in his hands, his feet, his side, he'll be with us. And I love verse 4. What, what a precious verse. You've heard it, I'm sure. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Where do we get tears from, by the way? Why are we crying? Why does he have to mention that? I think he's specifically talking about the tears that were probably shed by Christians at the great white throne. I know I'm connecting some dots, and I may not be totally dogmatic about this. I agree. But I wonder where we get the tears. I think we'll get the tears because we'll see loved ones, friends, people that we had an opportunity to witness to in this life and didn't. We'll see them cast into hell, into the lake of fire. What a horrifying scene as we stand there, I think, and are witnesses to that. But anyway, the tears are going to be wiped away. And there shall be no more death. Oh, that's the most precious thing said in this whole verse to me. Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. Oh, everything's going to be recreated. He said, and he that sat upon the throne. It's like the father has to interject this. When John, the apostle, is given this vision and he writes what he did so far. It's so important that off the throne comes the voice of God himself. Behold, I make all things new. That's Christ. He said this before. And he said unto me, write, for these words are true and faithful. Oh, he tells John. Make sure you write that down, John. Now, the rest of chapter 21 has some beautiful passages as well, and we find out some details about the New Jerusalem. I'll let you read that on your own, basically from verse 9 through the end of the chapter. I do want to pick up a little bit at the end, because at the end of chapter 21 of Revelation, there's a beautiful kind of conclusion to this city and part of chapter 22. I do want to read that. In chapter 21, let me jump back in in verse 22. And I saw no temple therein, See, there's not any need for a temple on earth anymore. Remember the Old Testament temple? No need of the church today. No need of the house of God. Now faith has become sight. We live with him. We don't need to serve him uh, in the same way we do now. We don't worship him the same way we worship him face to face. He said, I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. They dwell right with us. God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon. See, this is how different this whole eternal kingdom is going to be. There's no sun or moon anymore no, or to shine in it. We don't need that light. For the glory of God did lighten it. Jesus is the glory of God, and the Lamb is the light thereof. See how it brings that together? And the nations of them which are saved. I love that. Only the saved are going to be in this kingdom. All the wicked have been destroyed. Shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. There shall be, or in no wise enter into it anything that defileth. Neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Wow, what a city. 
Nobody but the saved shall be there. All the wicked shall be put down. Their names will be forgotten. But look at chapter 22, and this is where a division was put in. Might, might have been a little um, awkward here. May have been better to put the chapter to start at verse 6 of chapter 22 because it changes to the conclusion of the book. But anyway, nonetheless, these chapter divisions are helpful. I'm glad for them. I'm not knocking them. I love them. But verse 1 of chapter 22 just continues the thought. And he showed me that the same city, he's seeing the same new Jerusalem, the same new heavens and new earth, and he showed me a pure river of water of life. Now, this is the difference here, and maybe that's why they put the chapter division, is now instead of describing what's on earth, like the new Jerusalem and all the nations and all the beautiful things, the gates of the city and the foundations and all that earlier, now he describes the throne. And evidently it comes down to earth. Because he says, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Uh, you know, I'm going to leave all the idea of symbolism versus literalism here to you and I, and, and you come up with your own conclusion. I'm not going to abandon a literal interpretation until I know for sure I should because the Bible then becomes nonsensical if we do. Uh, how this all becomes literal, I'll leave that to God. Here's some real literal statements, though. Don't have to worry about symbolism here, and there shall be no more curse. Oh, wow. No more curse on the earth. No more sin in what it's caused. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. Man, I love that. Don't get this idea you're going to be floating around on a cloud taking a nap for the rest of eternity. That's not biblical. We're going to serve God. God's an active God. He's always serving us. We're going to serve Him. It's a pleasure. It's an honor to serve the living God. We're going to serve Him for eternity. We're going to love it. They shall see His face. Wow, what a statement. We're going to see the face of Christ. When you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father, you've seen the Spirit, you've seen God. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Jesus is. And his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. And they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. There's the thought of eternity. So, uh, the end of the book of Revelation does what I want to do to end our episode and our whole series today. And that is to appeal to us to make sure you're saved. You know why so many people read books like the book of Revelation especially and they say, Man, it's scary. I don't want to read it. I want to hear about it. Because they're not ready to be a part of the events it describes. The only way you'll enjoy the book of Revelation and, and, and be glad for, for how it ends and all the contents of it is that if you're saved, you're going to be on the right side. You are on the right side if you're saved. You're on the winning team. You're going to enjoy all the blessings of eternity. But if you die lost or you're lost when Jesus comes back at the rapture, and you've heard the gospel as we talked about in one of the earlier episodes. You will go into this tribulation period, take the mark of the beast, and be damned. That's horrifying, friend. No one, including God himself, wants you to go to hell. No Christian, no church, myself included, our church. We don't want to see you die lost. We want to see you a part of God's kingdom. We want to see you there at the judgment seat of Christ and down on the millennial kingdom on earth and then in eternity in this new heavens and new earth. We want you there. Do you know what Jesus said? Let me sum up the end of chapter 22. It's a beautiful end of the passage, and I'll just have to leave you to, to study it on your own and read it. But I'll tell you a statement that jumps out at you. If you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, 
there's four statements made in the end of this 22nd chapter that are all in red. That's Jesus speaking. And three times he says this, I come quickly, verse 7. Verse 12, I come quickly. And then he says, the last words recorded of our Lord in Holy Scripture to end the whole Bible, surely I come quickly. Now, that sounds strange to us. It's been 2,000 years since, nearly 2,000 years since Jesus left. And he's back in heaven as he, he sits as our high priest on the right hand of God. But he is coming again. And what does he mean by quickly? Well, to you and I, whenever he comes, it will seem quickly. Because most of the world, as we know, won't expect it. And he could come at any time. That's the imminent return of Christ. He could come at any time. That's why it's called quickly. And in his patience and long-suffering, he's let, let us have these 1,900 and some odd hundred years to come to Christ and for the world to believe on him and for missionaries to take his word around the world and for churches like ours to spread the gospel and individual Christians serving in his churches to get the gospel out to their loved ones and neighbors and family and so on. See, but he, but he ends by this appeal. Boy, it's a strong appeal. You better know I'm coming quickly. You better get right with me before it's too late. Well, I want to appeal to you, friend, who's listened to this series. I want to commend you for your persistence uh, and your patience and, and sticking with this thing. I hope you've listened to all the episodes prior to this, but this is how it ends. This is how the Bible ends. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. What does he mean by that? You better be in his grace. How do you get in his grace? Well, you got to repent of your sins. you got to believe on Jesus Christ and him only. Not your church membership, not your baptism, not your good works you try to perform, not your charity, all the things people look to to kind of build themselves up. you got to come as a broken sinner who's offended a holy God and realize the only way you can be forgiven is ask for God's mercy. Plead and say, God, save me a sinner. Repent of your sins. That means have a desire to turn away from your sins and embrace Jesus Christ in a commitment of your life that you'll follow him. Jesus' greatest words were, follow me. And friend, if you'll follow Christ, you'll determine to turn away from your old life, follow Christ, you will be saved, you will be a part of his kingdom. And the last words that really touch me, uh, yes, our, our Lord's words, surely I come quickly, but they actually come from John. And these are just amazing. Here's how John ends what he says in this book. He says in verse 20, even so come Lord Jesus. Wow, I've, I've preached on that, those words. Those words have always just, just blown my mind, really. They're, they're amazing. After all that John has said, I mean, there's a lot of horrifying things. There is a lot of judgment. There's a lot of negative things. He's not negating that. He's not, you know, casting any kind of doubt on that. It is horrifying what's going to happen, and the wicked are going to be punished. And He says all that. That's what the phrase even so means. He's saying, Lord, even though I know all this is going to come to pass and there's going to be a lot of people who will die lost, and the Lord even said that few there be that find it, broad is the road that leads them to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. We all know that. John knew that. But John says, you know, I'm so glad to be a part of this, Lord. Please come. And I want to end by that same feeling in my heart. And I've said it many times to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I know that your coming is going to bring about some horrifying judgment on the world. People are going to be lost forever. And it's true, many will die and be thrown into the lake of fire. It won't be because God hasn't had mercy on them and wanted to save them. It won't be because of that at all. It's because they have rejected the only way of salvation after all these centuries and millenniums of, of time that God has had mercy on the world.
and sent his son and gave his word and, and created churches like ours to get that truth out and Christians to share their faith and live a good testimony. And so those who die lost, as much as I hate to hear it, and I don't want that on anybody. But even saying that, I'm with John. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Friend, are you ready for his coming? If you're not saved, turn to Christ today. If you need further instruction, further help, you want to talk about this, we encourage you. Go to our website, arlingtonbaptist.info. Uh, you may have gotten to the podcast from the website, but on the website you can contact us with questions and, and uh, dialogue, and we'll, we'll even come visit you personally if you live in our area. If not, we'll start a dialogue with you. We want you to know what it means to be saved. Be ready when Jesus comes. It's going to happen soon, Lord. the Lord says. He said, I come quickly. And I believe, as going back to the very first episodes of this series, that the signs of the Lord's coming are all around us. And I think he's coming soon. I'm not giving a date. No one should and can. But you better be ready, friend. If he comes and you've heard the gospel, you've been listening to this podcast even, you will be left behind forever. Well, I want to thank you for listening. And as we always close, let me close with our motto, conviction for truth, compassion for people.